getting ready to go on a trip uh, to the Promised Land, to Texas, and uh, get to be there for a few days. But when I go on a trip, I, I always want to make sure that I'm prepared when it comes to having power to my devices. My phone, my tablet, my computer, I, the last thing in the world I want to have happen is to be traveling and to not have a way to charge one of my devices. And some of you are like, what's the big deal? You can go out to Best Buy and pick up a charging cable on the fly and plug it in. Some of you live dangerously. Like, you let your phone get below 49%. Once it hits that, some of y'all right now are like, dude, that's me, and my phone's going to die before this sermon ends. Um, I, that, I can't handle that. Like, I start getting sweaty palms. I start getting nervous. So I pack a separate bag with all of my tech cables in it and all of my power stuff. I bring two uh, full-size charging bricks for my laptop, Y2, in case what happened, well, what if one breaks? Or what if somebody else needs one and I have to give one to somebody and, and because it's a good Samaritan situation. Hey, my laptop's going to die. Yeah, I happen to have one. Um, I carry the, the, the iPad charger. I carry like the small cell phone brick. I have a USB-C to lightning adapter. I've got a USB to lightning adapter. I've got everything that you can think of because I want to be prepared. In fact, I usually carry two of those portable charging banks that you can plug in, one of which will jumpstart my car as well if I need that. So I like to be prepared. I like to have enough power because the reality is if I run out of power, then my device is useless. If my battery dies, then all I have is a paperweight. I don't have anything that's going to do any good for me. Our phones, our tablets, our computers, our laptops, those things, they need power in order to function the way that they're intended to function. In fact, they need power to be any benefit to us whatsoever at all. Well, y'all, your walk with Christ needs power if it's going to have any vitality to it whatsoever at all. Your walk with Christ needs to be connected to a power supply that if it's not there, really, you're wasting your time. And this whole profession of yours that is saying, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, I am a Christian, is really nothing but empty words. Our writer of Hebrews takes an interlude in the text. He takes a time out. He's been talking about Jesus as our high priest and these great themes and how great Jesus is and everything else. And he's going to get back to that. He's going to get back to our, our boy Melchizedek but he's going to take this break in chapter 5 and chapter 6 where he's going to get real with his audience and in turn he's going to get real with us. Where he's saying, look, before I keep going, I need to deal with the reality that there's some of you who are here that are saying that you are a functioning, living, breathing, active Christian, but you've got no power. There's no substance there. That you are but a shell. You're but an external facade that is saying one thing, but your life is completely betraying a different reality. And I want you to know that there's a great danger here. And so that's what the writer is going to do in the passage that we look at tonight and in the passage before us next week. But grab your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Let's start there at least. Coming off of this great passage about Melchizedek, he says in verse 11, about this, about Melchizedek, about the high priesthood of Christ, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. About this, yeah, this heady subject about Melchizedek, this 
lofty concept of, of Jesus as our great high priest. He's saying, I want to keep talking to you about these things. And he will. Like I said, in chapter 7, he gets back to it. But he says, before we get back to that, because this is hard to explain, it's hard to understand, we need to address a problem. And that is that there are at least some of you who are out there who are listening to this letter being read. Because remember, the book of Hebrews, it was a, a letter written originally to a specific group of people. And the whole thing would have been read out loud in one setting. And so, so there's, there's some of you out there who I, I just need to let you know that, that you have, and he puts it this way, become dull of hearing. You're listening, you're hearing the words, you're hearing the truth of scripture, you're, you're hearing the gospel, you're reading the, the word of scripture for us, you have the Bible in your possession, you're reading the Bible, uh, but you know what, it's, it's, it's not doing anything in your life because you're not responding to it. With my kids, we will often tell them, and your parents probably told this to you if they were involved in your life and raising you in, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that not only are you to listen, but you are to listen and what? Listen and obey. We teach our kids that. We've taught our kids that from the time that they were able to understand the English language. Listen and obey. That you haven't really listened until you have completed your obedience. If mom and dad say, hey, you need to go clean your room, and you go up and you just sit on the floor in the middle of your room and you do nothing, and we walk in, we say, hey, why aren't you cleaning your room? Didn't you hear us? And you say, well, yeah, I heard you. I listened to you. Well, the lack of obedience shows that you really didn't get the point. You didn't get the message. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, there's some amongst you who have heard the gospel. You've heard these spiritual truths. You've heard these realities about the fact that Jesus is your high priest. And all of this good news that he's spoken by the prophets long ago, now he's spoken to us by his son. You've heard all these things, but really, really you haven't listened. You've become dull of hearing because it's not doing anything in your life. And what's the evidence? He says, well, by this time, you ought to be teachers. What does he mean by that? Well, Paul commends the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 1.8. 1 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul writes this. He says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you there in Thessalonica, in Macedonia, and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul's looking at this church in Thessalonica saying, you guys are doing it. You're hearing, you're listening, and you're obeying. You are the teachers. You are the ones that are, and, and here's the, the thrust behind the word teacher here, you are proclaiming your faith. You're the evangelists. You're doing the work of getting the message out there, and people are hearing it, and they're knowing about it. And hey, Thessalonica, good job. You've got a reputation, not only in your immediate region, but Paul's saying everywhere I go, people are telling me about the believers at Thessalonica. He's saying that's the mark of a spiritually mature body of believers. Our writer in Hebrews is writing to this church going, you guys aren't that. He says, by this point in time, chronology, enough time has passed. You've been exposed to the teaching of the word of God long enough. You've had the word fed to you long enough. The basics gone over and you've learned spiritually mature concepts as he's talking about the high priesthood and Melchizedek and everything else. He says, by this time, you guys should have a reputation in the community where people are taking notice of this church. And he's saying, but the problem is, at least for some of you, you're not there. Saying, though, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. What? Teach me what? The, the basic principles of the oracles of God. One commentator, R.T. France, put the, that phrase this way, the ABCs of Christianity. You need to go back to the basics. 
You go back to kindergarten and learn the fundamentals. This is A. This is B. This is C. My wife is, is working on some preschool stuff with my twins right now. And they're in that stage where they're like, okay, we're learning one letter and what that letter stands for. And so they'll say, you know, they're doing it with Aaron Kelly. And they're like, A-A-A stands for Aaron. And then they're, they're learning B recently. And Sam this week was like, B, 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 B for cubbies. B-b-b-cubbies. No, that's not how it works. He's learning the rudimentary basics of things, right? They're, they're fumbling their way through figuring out the building blocks of the English language. Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, there's some of you who, even though you've been exposed to the teaching of the Word of God for so long, man, you've got to go back to the basics because you clearly don't get it. You are, as he goes on to say, unskilled in the Word of Righteousness unskilled in the word of righteousness. If you, if you become dull of hearing, how, how are you going to keep up with Melchizedek and the high priesthood of Christ and the offerings and the sacrifices that he's going to get into? If you need to go back and remember the basic and be taught again the basic oracles of Christianity, the basic message of Christianity. Because he says the one who is simply living on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. That's a strange way of putting it, but basically what it means is this, a failure to apply the word as taught. The word of righteousness is the scriptures. Well, to be skilled in the word of righteousness is to apply the word as it's taught. It's to read the word and say, how do I need to live this out? And the writer of Hebrews is saying that there are those of you who are so infantile, if you have any faith at all, you're so infantile in that faith that you need to be reminded that, hey, this Bible is supposed to do something in your life. Because your life is betraying that it's not doing anything. Again, tonight's passage marks the beginning of this parenthetical section in the book of Hebrews where the author interrupts the flow to confront what can only really be described as spiritual apathy in the lives of those that he's writing to, at least some of them. And spiritual apathy is nothing new, and it's, it's not anything that was new at this time either. Go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. You have... Eve, in the garden, who becomes apathetic about keeping the, the command and the law of God. And the enemy, Satan, comes along. Did God really say? And Eve says, oh yeah, God really said. Don't, don't, don't eat it, don't touch it, don't smell it, don't see it, don't look at it, don't, don't do any of that or else we're going to die. And the enemy says, well, you're surely not going to die. Because God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like him, knowing good for evil. God's just a megalomaniac. He doesn't want any rivals to his throne. This is interesting, right? Because the, the fall of Satan was because he tried to put himself forward as a rival. So he's tempting Eve to do the same thing that led to his fall, right? And he's saying, God, God just doesn't want you to be happy, Eve. Well, enter the apathy. Rather than remaining vigorous in pursuit of the obedience of God, Eve allows this apathy to cloud her vision and she reaches out and takes from the tree and she gives some to Adam and they eat and there goes the fall of humanity. Let's fast forward a little bit to Moses. Moses allowed apathy to creep into his life. He was leading the people out of 
out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, had done all these cool things and seen all these plagues happen and God do amazing, powerful things culminating in the parting of the Red Sea. He leads Israel through the Red Sea. They get to the other side. They go in. He's seen God show up time and time and time again for him. And then the people, they come to a dry spell and they grumble and they complain about against Moses because He's not providing them what they need. Moses goes to the Lord and says, Lord, this people that you've given me, they're, they're just nothing but grumblers and complainers. Now they're asking for water, which, by the way, Moses had already provided for them once before by going out and doing what to a rock? Hitting it, striking it with his rod. Well, this time God says, Moses, I want you to go out and I want you to speak to the rock, and the rock is going to provide water. Enter apathy. Moses becomes apathetic about vigorously obeying God and everything that God has commanded, and he goes out and he takes his staff and he strikes the rock. And yeah, water comes forth, but you know what Moses forfeited in that moment? He forfeited his, his entrance into the promised land because apathy crept in and allowed an unbelief to cloud his vision of what it meant to obey God. Let's fast forward even more. How about David, King David, a man after God's own heart? Well, David, it just so happened at the time when war was happening and kings were to go out to battle with their armies, David decided, you know what? Things are going pretty well for Israel. I don't know that I really need to go out. We're going to rest our starters. So I'm going to hang back at the palace and send the armies out there. And oh, I'm going to go for a walk on the, the roof of the palace at a time of, of day when people tend to hang out on their, their rooftops and bathe. Oh, look at that. There's a naked lady over there. She's kind of cute. Um, I'm going to linger. Oh, and you know, oh, I'm the king of Israel. I'm going to have one of my guards. You see apathy creep in here. Rather than remaining vigorously obedient to the Lord, David allowed apathy to cloud his vision of what it meant to obey God at all costs and in every circumstance. And that led to his adultery with Bathsheba. That led to conspiracy, trying to cover it up, deceit, lying. That led to ultimately the murder of Uriah the Hittite and the death of his child that he had with Bathsheba. Let's go even further. Let's jump in the New Testament. How about Peter? Peter. Not Peter with the denials of Christ. Maybe that's where you thought I was going to go with this. But, but Peter after that. Peter after the launch in Acts. Peter after the day of Pentecost. Everything's going well. But if you remember back to Galatians chapter 2, Paul has to bow up and confront Peter over something. Because Peter had grown apathetic and forgot that the gospel was for all people at all times. And there was no longer to be a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he was no longer to retreat from people. So enter apathy. Peter begins to just hang out with the, the Gentiles as long as there were no Jews around. Well, when the Jews show up, the Jewish delegation comes to check out what's going on. Peter's like, oh, wait, they're coming from Jerusalem. They're not going to want to see me hanging and eating with these Gentiles. I'm going to separate myself. And I'm going to go over and spend time with just the Jews. Again, apathy creeps in. Paul has to boldly confront him face to face in the book of Galatians there. See, apathy is nothing new. It's been around really from the, the dawn of humanity. And here's the thing about apathy. Sometimes it does produce active disobedience, but other times apathy is most realized in us through inactive disobedience. That is when we just look at the, the word of God, the commands of God, the, the passages here in and they just don't do anything to us. They don't move the needle for us at all. We are listening. We're doing our daily Bible reading. We're showing up at church every single week. We're showing up at small groups. We even have an accountability partner. But really, it's, it's, the needle's not moving. It's not even budging. It's just week after week after week, we are, if I can borrow a, a terminology from the, the, the biological world, we are stagnant. You know what it is to be stagnant? Have you ever seen stagnant water? Stagnant water is a pretty gross thing, isn't it? 
It's what happens when it rains like once in a blue moon here in Southern California and you go out in the backyard and there's low spots in your, your concrete or maybe you have a planter there that's filled up with water and it sits there out in the summer heat for two or three days and you go out there and you look at it and you can see the film on top of the water and you can see the bugs, the mosquitoes that are laying their eggs on top of the water and it can also be a breeding ground for maggots in the stagnant water. This is pleasant thought after Cafe Rio, huh? Don't worry, it was just rice. I promise you that was rice that you ate. But now you're wondering. But that, that grotesque, stagnant water, the reason it becomes that way is because there's no movement. Water that has no movement to it stagnates. Y'all, a Christian with no movement in their life stagnates. First point tonight is this. Beware the dangers of spiritual stagnancy. Beware the dangers of spiritual stagnancy. You have become dull of hearing, he says. There's a contrast here. Because back in chapter 5, verse 9, just two verses before that statement, the, the writer said, And being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That word obey in chapter 5, verse 9, is connected to the word to hear. It's to hear and then obey. And now he's saying, but there's a problem. Some of you out there are not hearing and obeying. You've become dull of hearing. Spiritual stagnancy, what can it look like? Well, let's list a, a few words here. How about boredom? Man, Christianity, your relationship with God, it, just, it bores you. It bores you to read the Bible. It bores you to pray. It bores you to come to church. It bores you to go to small group. You're bored by it all. Another sign of spiritual stagnancy is just simple disinterest. Yeah, I can take it or leave it. I mean, I've got nothing better to do on Sunday night, so I guess I'll go to the bridge. Uh, you know, if something, if I get a better offer, then maybe I'll, I'll go do something different. There's just a, a, a disinterest, an apathy about you. Third is, is just going through the motions. Yeah, you come, you're there, you're faithful to be there, but there's no... There's no substance. There's no content. It's just empty. It's just going through the motions. Again, you pick up your Bible. You do your daily Bible reading in the morning, but there's no, the, the needle doesn't move. There's no response to the word of God in your heart. Another sign is prideful knowledge hoarding. Knowledge puffs up, right? For some of you, you are spiritually stagnant, but you wouldn't think you are because you've got the knowledge. You've read the theology books. You do the, the systematic theology reading. You're even in CBI classes. And you think, man, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing great, but the problem is you've got all this knowledge, but that knowledge is not moving you to do anything. You're just a smarter, ineffective Christian. Y'all, there are churches packed to the brim with spiritually stagnant Christians. Full. And each week they come back and they get what the writer's talking about here. They get a little bit more milk and a little bit more milk and a little bit more milk and a little bit more milk. And that's what keeps them coming back because they're never going to be challenged. They're never going to be pressed. They're never going to be stretched. They're never going to be confronted. Nobody's ever going to pull them aside and tell them, I'm concerned about where you're at spiritually because I think you're just playing a game called Christianity. Stagnant Christianity is a Christianity that doesn't get too involved in your personal business. 
you can go to a church that's full of stagnant Christians and, and they're not really going to care too much about your daily life. They just want you to show up at their events. Stagnant Christianity thrives on anonymity. You can show up at churches full of stagnant Christians and maybe they know your first name and they know maybe, you know, what grade you're in or, or whatever, but Really, if you're not there, okay, whatever. They've probably got something going on. No big deal that they're not there. Maybe I'll see them again next time. Maybe I won't. Okay, let's move on. There's the ability to be there and to be anonymous. Y'all, we don't want anybody in the church to be anonymous. The church is a place that's all about being known and knowing others. Stagnant Christianity also won't ask too much of you. It's not going to ask you to serve. It's not going to ask you to go through a program like Partners. It's not going to ask you to evangelize. It's not going to ask you to memorize scripture. Stagnant Christianity is convenient Christianity. If your life gets busy and you need to, to back up from the church for a little while, that's fine. We get it. That's cool. Don't worry about it. Hey, we'll be here when you come back. rather than the message of true Christianity, which is the message that Christ is Lord and that everything in our life bows to him. Stagnant Christianity is an add-on to the rest of your life. You add it on just like you've got your classes and you've got your job and you've got your social circle. And yeah, I've got the church. The church is in there too. It's cool. It doesn't preach godliness. It doesn't warn against sin. And because of those two things, it's attractive to the world. Now, this is the, the danger of stagnant Christianity. And the danger is because at the end of the day, stagnant Christianity is not real Christianity. It's a facade. It's a shell. It's a false profession. And the author is saying, we need to be aware of that. Again, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke, right? We talked about that in the opening message, how immensely significant that is, that God spoke to us, even by the prophets. Like Peter said, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that they were writing the words of God, that 2 Timothy 3, 16, that, that those are the God-breathed words from him to us through the prophets. That alone is significant. If that's all we have, man, we need to listen and obey to that because it's God speaking to us. But then he goes on and says this, but in verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by somebody even greater, by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now look at this and ask yourself, does the message of Jesus from the Father line up with any of this? And the answer is no. Jesus isn't here to make you comfortable. Right? When Paul says, blessed be the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he's not talking about making your life easy here. If you think he is, read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. No, he's saying God can comfort you as you walk through the trial, knowing that this light momentary affliction that he's going to talk about in 2 Corinthians 4 is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. See, the comfort's not about here, it's about there. Stagnant Christianity is about comfort here. Being dull of hearing is about, I want a little bit of Jesus in my life, but don't give me too much. Don't ask me to change. Don't ask me to get too radical about it. 
Hebrews 4, 11 through 13 that we covered. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Notice the focus here is on their failing to obey. That apathy, that spiritual stagnancy, they're falling by disobedience. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints of marrow, discerning the thoughts, the intentions of the heart. No one is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Y'all, if you can read the word of God and walk away and not respond to it at all, there's a problem. Because God's word is a scalpel in the hands of the divine surgeon. And if you have the Holy Spirit living within you, it's going to lay you bare and say, hey, we've got we've to do some things. And even the things that you're doing well, excel still more. Go harder. Run further. Love more. You know, that's one of the reasons why we have small groups in so many of our ministries is to help to guard against spiritual stagnancy. It's to guard against you just showing up for the message and going, okay, yeah, that's nice, and then leaving and not doing anything with it. That's why our HFGs are built upon applying the message that Pastor Mike preaches week in and week out here. It's because he's not up there to just be up there to, to have a pulpit and a place for his voice. Pastor Mike does what he does and preaches what he preaches because he wants it to transform our lives. Well, we have these HFGs, home fellowship groups, you have your small groups here in the, in the bridge so that you will take what's preached and begin to think about, man, that's the word of God being preached and opened up for me. What should I do with it? And a spiritually stagnant Christian says, man, I don't want that. A spiritually stagnant Christian sits back and, and looks at the questions in small group and criticizes the questions. Says, oh, well, that's not a very good question. Or really, I'm, am I really supposed to answer that? I, I don't really feel like answering that. A spiritually stagnant Christian sits back in small groups and judges other people's answers. Oh, well, of course they're going to say that. They're the, the goody-two-shoes Christian. They, yeah, I'm sure that's their problem. A spiritually stagnant Christian doesn't speak in small groups. Well, I'm just shy. You're prideful. Your leaders, y'all, are there in your, in your small groups to help you Make sure that you are not stagnating in your walk with Christ. To spur you on, to run the race in front of you and say, come follow me. Your peers are there to encourage you, to support you, to build you up, to pray with you, and yes, to confront you when you need to be confronted. Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches in Revelation 2 through 3. One of those letters was written to the church at Laodicea. And the church at Laodicea was in an area that was known for two sources of water nearby Laodicea. Over in one region, you had hot springs. And the hot springs were there, and they were purported to have healing properties to them. That it would restore people's uh, physical defects. That they could go and soak in the hot springs and find refreshment and healing there. Was that legitimate? I don't, I don't know. That's not the point of, of the letter here. But then on the, another town in the region of Laodicea, there were cold springs. And man, that was good for the water that, that was necessary for drinking. That drinking water it was refreshing, it was crisp, it was cool. But the problem was in, in Laodicea, by the time the water got to them, the drinking water got to them, it was tepid, it was lukewarm, it was on the borderline of, of being stagnant. And by the time the, the water from the hot springs got to them, it was the same thing, it had lost all its its power, all of its significance. 
Well, Jesus writes to that church and he says this, I know your works, Revelation 3, 15 through 16. He says, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. We misunderstand that. We think that Jesus is saying by wishing someone is cold that, he, that they don't believe in him. That's not the context. That's why knowing the context in scripture is so important. No, there, there were cold springs that were a good thing. Jesus is not wishing that anybody would reject him. He's saying, I wish that you were either refreshing and beneficial like a good cold drink of water or that you were helpful by ministering to one another like these hot springs over here. He says, you, you're doing nothing. He says, you're neither. So, verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth, says Jesus. He's dealing with spiritually stagnant Christians. It's the same problem that the writer of Hebrews is confronting here. By this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need to go back and have somebody teach you. Y'all, are you in danger of having your relationship with the Lord grow stagnant? Or maybe you already are sitting out there going, that's me. My relationship with the Lord is stagnant. If that's you, let me encourage you, get back to the basics. Because that's what the writer of Hebrews says needs to be done. You need to get back to the basics of Christianity, back to the basics of the gospel. Remind yourself of the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Remind yourself that he has forgiven you, that you are forgiven in Christ. But y'all, here's the thing. At that point in time, know that we must grow. We must grow. You guys have heard me say this to you before. Jesus will save you wherever you are, but he will not leave you where you are. True Christianity transforms us. It's a progressive growth into Christ-likeness. This church in the, that was the recipients of the original letter to the Hebrews, they had plenty of time to have grown, and yet there were some amongst them that were showing no signs of life. And the author was concerned. He says, you need milk, but verse 14, but solid food, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So now he's contrasting the, the, the stagnant Christians with the mature Christians. Mature being those that are, the, the Greek word there is teleos. It's the same word when Jesus was made perfect by his suffering. He's saying, look, for us as Christians, we need to be made complete. We need to grow in our Christ-likeness, grow in our understanding of the gospel. We need to be made complete, made mature. And how do we do that? Well, it's to have our, our powers of discernment, being able to tell a difference between something. Between what? Our powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish what is good from what is evil. Do you notice the focus on obedience and morality here? that marks out a mature Christian. To have our powers of discernment, to be able to tell the difference between something, trained by constant practice, meaning every single day we are encountering different scenarios where there is good and there is evil, and we are called to discern what is good, and there the implicit call here is to choose the good and to reject the evil. That's the mark of a mature Christian. That's what we call sanctification. And so we learned something else about these stagnant Christians. And that, that is not only was there no movement, but there was actually some backsliding here. There was reversing course. 
there was some immorality here that's impl- uh, implied by the fact that they are contrasted with the mature Christians who are able to discern good from evil and choose the good over the evil. But he says, no, he says, we need to go on to maturity. He says, therefore, let us, verse, chapter 6, verse 1, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. What is the elementary doctrine of Christ? Well, it's the milk that he's been talking about in verses 12 through 14. It's the basics. Well, I'm saved by grace through faith and, and that, not of my own works that no one may boast. Yes, that is the foundation of our gospel, but that is to propel us forward, not to anchor us in place. He says, let us leave. Leave not in the sense that we're abandoning it or forgetting it, but to be carried past is literally the Greek there. To be carried by, to be carried on. Like when you, you know, when you enter into a lazy river, you guys all know the lazy river, right? That's super warm because all the people go in there and just pee, right? That's why. It's, it's the only logical response to that. But you get in the, the water and you, you realize that that water has a current, well, that entry point is going to be your departure point. You're leaving. You're going to be carried on by the current further on down the river. That's similar to what he's arguing here. We should be carried on past the elementary doctrines of Christianity. Not that they're, they're, they're not important. Not that they're not the foundation of our faith and our growth in Christ. Because they are 100%. But he's saying, believer, if you want to be mature, you should be carried on past that by having your powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern what is good and what is evil and to choose the good over the evil. It says, let us leave, not laying again a foundation. Y'all know what a foundation is for, right? It's to uphold the building. He's talking about we need to get building. We need to, to start building our edifices, building our walks with Christ upon this foundation. Well, once a foundation is laid, how many times do you go back and relay that foundation? No times. If it's done right, then that foundation is to be trusted. And you build upon that foundation knowing that it's, it's secure, knowing that it's sure. Y'all, our foundation is Christ and the apostles. There is no more certain, solid foundation for us in this world. You don't need to go back and relay that foundation. What you need to be doing is building upon that foundation. But he says, let's not go back and lay again a foundation of, and then he lists these couplets, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That's the gospel. That's the, the, the kernel of the gospel right there, right? He says, we don't need to go back again and again and again and again and again to that. Once you are saved, you are saved. It's a singular transaction in time. But then he goes on, he says, uh, instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. This is probably a glimpse into the, the ceremonial practices, the ritual practices of the early Christian church, but it likely had the, the reference to some of the practices that may have been carried over from Judaism, that there were the cleansings, the washings before going into worship, and then the laying on of hands for the act of, of commissioning a, a believer, commissioning a new Christian, welcoming them into the body and recognizing them by the laying on of hands. He says, hey, we don't need to do this over and over and over again. We can leave that behind. That's a, a foundation that doesn't need to be relayed time and time and time again. And then one more, he says, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Yeah, the, the, the hope of your resurrection and the fear of eternal damnation that was there at the part of the, the moment of your conversion when you were first saved Yes, we can move beyond that now and start to focus on how then should we live in light of that. 
to borrow from a paradigm he's going to use later, a, a, a metaphor rather he's going to use later, we need to get out of the starting blocks. And some of us aren't getting out of the starting blocks. Some of y'all lack your confidence in your standing with Christ because you keep drifting into disobedience and feeling like you need to be saved again or to recommit. One of the reasons why we don't champion the concept of recommitting your life to Christ here at Compass is because it becomes a security blanket and an excuse to go on sinning. Because if I can always fall back and just simply recommit, then I don't ever really have to commit in the first place. Our author is saying this, if you're a believer, let's get to living like a believer, living like a Christian. Christian, if you are there and you're going, ah, man, I believe the gospel, but I've been beset by this sin in my life. Y'all, it's time to, to start choosing the good and rejecting the evil. There is no magic phrase. There's no magic formula. There's no magic app that's going to free you from that sin. Christ has freed you from that sin. The answer is now it's time to start living. It's time to, start, to, to stop being stagnant and to start actually living and delighting in your growth in Jesus. Constantly evaluating again good from evil and choosing good over evil. Uh, summarize it this way. Point number two, pursue a healthy spiritual growth. Pursue a healthy spiritual growth. If you want to avoid the dangers of spiritual stagnancy, how do I do that? Get moving. Movement means there is no stagnancy. Well, movement towards what? Towards spiritual growth in Christ. Towards obedience to Jesus. Again, the starting block analogy. Some of y'all keep stumbling out of the starting blocks and you think the problem is with the blocks. And so you go back to the blocks and you want to make little tweaks and adjustments to the setting on the blocks. Like you, you change up the words in your prayer of repentance. Or you, you add a measure of accountability that you didn't have before. Or you get emotional over it and you think, okay, maybe if I get emotional enough, it's going to stick. It's going to take this time. Or you add somebody else into the equation and you think, okay, well, I've got another person in it now. So surely now... That's, that's the key. I didn't have that before. That's my hope. I'm going to put my hope in this person. Or you want me to recommend a book to you or your leader to recommend a book to you that's going to get you past a sin and, and on the right track and growing in Christ's likeness. Thinking that now it's going to be different and your hope and your trust is in that book and not where it needs to be. And what you find is you still stumble out of your blocks and so you go back to the blocks and go, okay, I've got to get something different then. Writers saying, stop relaying foundations. You're focusing on the wrong thing. There's a book out there, not, now that I say all that, and not that I'm recommending it, but just the title fits. The, the book's by a guy named Eugene Peterson. The title is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Man, I love that title because that's the Christian life. A long obedience in the same direction direction. You just keep moving towards Jesus. Sometimes step by step, sometimes inch by inch. But the Christian walk is about moving towards the finish line, albeit sometimes more gradually than others. You're moving towards Christ, choosing good over evil more and more as you move along that course. Y'all, can I tell you what I think some of the one of the biggest hindrances is to our growth in Christ's likeness. 
one of the biggest hindrances is to our growth in Christ-likeness is that we are too concerned about how to avoid sin. You say, well, that is not what I expected you to say. Here's what I mean. I think our efforts are in not sinning instead of being in pleasing God. Your life is to be lived for the glory of God. Your life is to be lived for the pleasure of God. And rather than making your aim simply, well, I don't want to sin, I'm going to set myself up not to sin today, I need to not sin, I need to put this accountability in place, I need to not sin, not sin, not sin, not sin, not sin. What if you started thinking about how can I please God right now? What thoughts are going to please God right now? What can I do with my life that's going to please God right now? What about my day is going to please God today? I'm about to go to an eight-hour shift at work. How can I please God while I'm there? Start thinking actively about pursuing spiritual growth by pursuing the good, not just about avoiding the evil. And if you pursue the good, you get the avoidance of the evil thrown in. But see, you can focus so much on avoiding the evil all the meantime, you're just kicked into neutral. You're not really pursuing any good. Pursuing a healthy spiritual growth, Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is it in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Y'all, this is why stagnant Christianity is not Christianity. Because a Christian is indwelt by the spirit of God. And yes, we can quench the spirit, but there will be signs of life. There will be spiritual fruit there. It may be less than at other times. But you will be moving. You will be growing. Because it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the command, work out your salvation. We need to feel the weight of that. To say, okay, I want to do that. I want to work out my salvation. And yet know that it's God who's at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, so how do I know when he is going to kick into gear? And I don't worry about that. Again, get back to asking yourself, what do I need to do to please the Lord and start doing those things? And know that as you're doing those things, you're doing those things because God's working in you. To willing to work for his good pleasure. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body. I make it my slave. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Notice Paul's like, I am going to pursue spiritual growth by disciplining my body, my flesh. Because I know that my flesh wants to raise up. I know my flesh wants to battle me. I know my flesh is not the good but the evil. And so I'm going to discipline my body so that I might choose the good. I might choose to please God. Y'all, are you disciplining yourself that way? You say, man, this sounds hard. And it is, but what else is better in this world? In fact, Jesus made that point. Well, Jesus and his disciples made that point. John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69 says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Why? Because Jesus was teaching that life was going to be hard as a believer, that it was going to be hard to follow him. And Jesus turned and said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, y'all, it's hard, but he's worth it because no one else has the words of eternal life. And here's the thing. If you start saying, how can I please God? How can I please God today? How can I please God? Here's the promise of the Bible. You want to know what the promise of the Bible is? If you draw near to God, you know what, the, what God says he'll do with you? He will draw near to you. That's James 4, 8. If you're out there going, man, I just feel distant from the Lord. I feel dry. I feel like I've been spiritually stagnant. Y'all, if you will begin to draw near to the Lord, Lord, how can I please you today? I want to please you in reading the Bible today. I'm going to choose one thing from what I read today to work on in my life. How can I actively please you today and not just avoid sin? If you start establishing that pattern in your life, guess what? God is going to draw near to you. And you're going to have that joy about your relationship with Jesus. You're going to have that intimacy that you feel like you don't have right now. But again, just like Paul said, it's God who is at work to will and to work for his good pleasure in us as we work out our salvation. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 3. Last verse tonight, he says this, and this we will do. We will, we will gr grow. We will leave the elementary doctrines. We will press on towards maturity in Christ. This we will do, what does he say there? If God wills, if God permits talked about power at the beginning. There's a lot of things that I can't do without power, right? I need gas in my car. Otherwise, my car doesn't go anywhere. My phone needs a battery. Used to be back in the day with flip phones, guys, that you could take the battery off the phone. It wasn't like baked into the whole thing. True story. You could just swap them out. Man, my battery died. Okay, I'll go get a new one. You don't have to send it to um, Apple to have them charge you everything to get the, the new battery. My computer needs an outlet, right? My Mac Mini that I've got in my office, if that's not plugged into the wall and it's just a, a weird-looking square that does nothing, it has a piece of fruit on it. That's all it is. It needs power, right? Uh, my food, if I'm going to eat meat, it needs heat to cook. Some of you contrarians are out there going, not sushi. You get my point. My debit card, if I'm going to use my debit card, guess what it needs? It needs, it needs funds. My body needs sleep. Some of y'all are saying amen to that, right? To function, it needs sleep. Well, here's the point I want to make to you tonight as we begin to move towards the end of our time. Y'all, we need God for the spiritual transformation that you so desire. Just like all of those things need their power to function. And that's what our author is saying here. Look, all of this we will do if God permits. Final point tonight is this. Trust the Lord for spiritual power. Trust the Lord for spiritual power. I, I don't think... He's phrasing a situation or framing a situation, rather, wherein God is going to respond to a genuine desire to draw near to him and go, nah, I don't really permit that. No. No, instead, I think what he's doing is he's reminding us that none of it's possible apart from God. He doesn't want us to become 
prideful. He doesn't want us to think that, that we are the ones behind this. He doesn't want us to become ineffective in our spiritual growth because it's all about us and how great we are. So he's reminding us the only way that you're going to grow in your relationship with the Lord is if God permits. Willpower, y'all, can only take us so far. Willpower can make you moral, nice, dignified. It can make you likable. It can even make you physically safe. Those are things that willpower can, can do. But for this growth in spiritual maturity that we're talking about, this growth that breaks us out of spiritual stagnancy, for that, we need a power that's beyond what we can provide for ourselves. We need that spiritual power. John chapter 3 Nicodemus, who sometimes I get confused with Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus was the wee little man. The wee little man was he that climbed up in the sycamore tree to see what he could see. Nicodemus is a different guy. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was the ruler of Israel, the teacher of, of Israel. He comes to Jesus, kind of begs the question, who are you and what are you doing? And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, you want to enter into the kingdom of God? You must be, what does he say? You must be clean morally. Nicodemus would have said, check. I'm a Pharisee. You must obey the law. Did you not hear me? I'm a Pharisee. You must uh, teach other people about the law. I'm the teacher of Israel. You must be an important person. I'm on the Sanhedrin. You must have the Bible memorized, done, all of the Torah memorized. He doesn't say any of that. He says, Nicodemus, you need something that you can't do. You must be born again. Nicodemus says, what? He says, how can, I'm a grown man. How can I climb back inside my mom's womb? It's weird, Jesus. Jesus says, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about a supernatural birth, a birth that comes from above, of water and spirit. You must be made new. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, hey, you know what? Here's, here's some cheerful news for you. You were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins. Following the course of the prince of the power of the air, the, son, the, the, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Oh, and by the way, they are all children of wrath by nature. And you were just like them. Thanks, Paul. But God has made you alive with Christ. It doesn't say, so good luck trying to make yourself alive because a dead body can't make itself alive. We need new life from Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we are what kind of creation in Christ? New creations in Christ. You're not some HGTV project where they come in and they renovate the, the, the inside while the outside looks just as bad as it always has. It's not lipstick on a pig when Jesus saves you. You are a new creation in Christ. Brand new. Why? Because we need that in order to grow. We need that regeneration in order to have the power to grow spiritually. So that's what I mean by trust the Lord for spiritual power. I'm not talking about some weird, mystical, squishy, cross your legs, put your fingers together and say, ohm. Like that is absolute nonsense, garbage, whatever. This is not new age Christianity. I'm saying remember who it is that's the reason for why you're able to grow in your relationship with God. And it's not you. It's not you. It's not that you're so great and awesome. 
And as soon as we start buying into that lie, then we are missing the point and we are undoing everything that we've done. When your spiritual maturity becomes a badge of honor for you and not a glory mark for Christ, then, then there's a problem. There's a misfire. Romans 8, chapter 5, verse 14. Take your Bibles, turn there as we end our time. Romans 8. You've got the four Gospels, you've got Acts, then you've got Romans. Romans 8, 5 through 14. Let's let Paul preach to us for a minute. He says this, he says, For those of us who live according to the flesh, or those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind, to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Notice this. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So by myself, in my willpower, in my flesh, I cannot submit to God. Those who are in the flesh, he says in verse 8, to reiterate it, cannot please God. No matter how moral and kind and good they are, they cannot please God. You, however, verse 9, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, our charismatic friends are going to go, see, see, you need, see, look, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you're good. You need the second blessing. Well, I've got a problem with that because Paul continues and he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So when do I get the Spirit? When I am saved. So take your laying on of hands and your second blessing, mumbo jumbo, and get it out of here. But if in Christ, if Christ is in you, verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you see what he's talking about here? Do you see that Paul, the same guy, the same bro that wrote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. He's writing this passage going, you want to know you're saved, how are you walking? He's saying, what does your obedience look like? Because if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're going to walk by the Spirit. Why? Because you're so great? No, you're not great. Because the Spirit who dwells in you is great. And the Spirit who dwells in you is going to have an impact in your life. That's what it means to trust in the Lord for spiritual power. Are you growing, Christian? Is the needle moving for you? Are you seeing fruit in your life? Is sanctification for you more about avoiding sin or pleasing God? Y'all, there's really two dangers when it comes to immature Christians. Danger number one is this. At best, you're forfeiting eternal rewards. 
in your spiritual stagnancy. And at worst, you're self-deceived. You're playing church, but not possessing the power needed to have genuine, transformative spiritual life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this would be a message that causes us to look inside, to ask the difficult questions of ourselves as we look in the mirror, and to examine our hearts to find out, to learn, to know whether or not we are walking in obedience to you or whether or not we are walking by the flesh. God, I pray that we would be honest in those assessments and not distract ourselves and think, well, I don't really want to talk about that or think about that because that's hard or makes me uncomfortable or even causes me to fear. But God, I pray that we would allow you by your spirit and through your word, even as we talked about in Hebrews chapter four, as it is living and active, I pray that you would allow it to do the work of the surgeon with his scalpel in hand tonight to pierce, to lay us open. God, I pray that these small groups would be times of transparency and honesty. Because if we're afraid to speak up because of the fear of what somebody in this room thinks, we're afraid of the wrong opinion. We need to be more fearful of what you will think, what you do think. God, you know every heart in this room and where they stand before you. You know every trial that a person is walking. You know every valley that they have gone through. Most importantly, you know whether or not they have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, I pray for any who have not made that decision. God, I pray that you would make them uncomfortable in their facade. Lord, that they would feel like never before the weight of the mask that they wear. And that they would be moved, if nothing else, to honesty tonight to say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not in Christ. And God, I ask that you would use that as a first step towards genuine, true conversion and salvation. God, we're grateful for the reality that James promised for us in James chapter 4. When he said, if we will draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Transform our thinking, Lord, so that our pursuit of godliness is less about avoiding sin or stopping a particular sin and more about saying, how can I please the Lord? How can I love him right now? With my thought life, with my words, with my actions. Because in that focus, if, if that will become our focus, Lord, the sin will fade away. Make us hungry to be vibrant, active, growing Christians, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.